welcome to this series, The Unlawful State. These podcasts are part of a wider series of articles investigating what seems to be an epidemic of unlawful practices by UK public bodies. In the podcast, we interview some of the most pioneering NGOs and learn about how they are using the law to fight back. I am Charlotte Thripland, editor of Open Justice, part of Open Democracy. I will be your host for the series along with my colleague and journalist, Oscar Rickett. In this interview, I spoke to Abby Brunswick, who's the founder and director of an organisation called Project 17, and Claire Jennings, who is a trustee of Project 17. Claire is also a public lawyer at the law firm Matthew Gold, and in her capacity as a lawyer, she sometimes takes on cases referred by Project 17. We also had Claire's adorable little baby in the studio with us, Asha, um, only four weeks old, and so you might hear some sweet little snuffles throughout the podcast. Project 17 aims to end destitution amongst migrant children. I think many people don't realise because it's very much underreported, but there's a subset of extremely vulnerable migrant families living in the UK in exceptional poverty. They are very often single mothers with small children. They're not entitled to asylum support or any mainstream welfare benefits, and their only safety net is a provision found in Section 17 of the Children Act 1989. This provides that any child that is living in need should be given support by the relevant local authority. I asked Claire and Abby to tell me a little bit more about the circumstances in which these families find themselves. We also talked about the unlawful decisions of local authorities that are preventing the families from accessing the support that they desperately need. Crucially, I also asked them about what Project 17 are doing to remedy this problem, how they are using the law to fight back on behalf of these families. Firstly, Abby told me more about the families in question. We work with families who are experiencing, as you say, like exceptional poverty or homelessness because they're excluded from accessing mainstream um, welfare benefits or social housing by immigration rules. Um, so we work with a, a, a wide variety of people from a wide variety of countries, backgrounds, um, and religions, all have in common the fact that they are experiencing really, really severe poverty with their children. Um, Typically, a story might be somebody who came to the UK as a visitor or a student, their circumstances changed while they were here and they maybe ended up overstaying a visa. Very often, people might have got into a relationship, got pregnant, had a child. That relationship might break down, um, unfortunately, quite often, there may be domestic violence um, and the person feels unable to return. Their child is born in the UK and, and their whole life is here and so perhaps end up overstaying visas. For a long time, uh, our clients tend to survive um, as best they can. Uh, you know, often very resilient people with lots of um, kind of social networks that are able to support uh, with maybe cash in hand work or food, um, staying with friends, moving around a lot. But eventually what seems to happen uh, is that the generosity of of those friends is exhausted and people find themselves homeless, um, no longer able to meet basic living needs for their children, not able to buy food or or nappies, milk. Uh, And so they're in a position where really... 
um, they have no support. And, and because because of their immigration status, they are unable to access the, the safety net that most of us can rely on in terms of um, you know, welfare, support, benefits, or making homelessness applications to the local authority. Um, they're stuck. Uh, and that's normally when, when we encounter people. So some of these families are literally li- living on the streets. Yeah, uh, very sadly that that, that mm. is true. Um, got a call from somebody this morning uh, who has been living in a church with two children since October. Um, we have various, yeah, various stories of people, you know, spending, sleeping in A&E, hospitals. Um, also, leave, leave people become very vulnerable to exploitation because maybe they are, um, you know, out on the streets late at night with their kids, clearly very distressed, and someone comes along and says, okay, you can come home with me, uh, stay with me. And, you know, maybe that works out, maybe it doesn't, maybe they're forced into kind of a sexual exploitation or domestic exploitation situation um, because of how desperate people are. And, And of course, that puts children at great risk and massive safeguarding issues with it. It's a big problem. We're not talking about um, support um, to live a nice life. We're talking about support just literally to survive, to feed themselves, to feed their babies, to get themselves to school, to have a roof over their heads. Is, is that right? Yeah. The, the, what we do is, is try to access this very limited form of support, as you mentioned, um, under Section 17 of the Children Act, which gives local authorities this, this power to provide accommodation and financial support to families who have children uh, who are in need. And, and But that support is absolutely minimal and basic. Claire, could you tell us a little bit more about Section 17 and this kind of support that they can access under that? So Section 17 um, was never originally envisaged for helping this kind of group, um, this kind of class of people. But it has become the safety net for families in this situation. What Section 17 basically provides is that where a child is in need, then a local authority um, can provide support to meet those needs. And that can include the provision of accommodation and it can include the provision of money on a regular basis. A family who is destitute or who can't who is homeless or hasn't got enough money to meet essential living needs um, will almost certainly be in need and therefore the local authority can provide support um, it's accessed via an assessment whereby the local authority assess whether or not the child is in need and if they are then what support should be given um, where support is given, often it's accommod- the accommodation given is often um, a room in a shared house, perhaps B and B accommodation, um, very rarely um, self-contained accommodation, and often weekly subsistence. Um, but that weekly monetary subsistence is usually very low. Um, at best, it's usually the same as what asylum seekers get, which is £35.39 per week. And whilst it has improved to get to that level um, over the years, it's still not that uncommon to see families being given less than than that. So 
even once they access Section 17 support, it's it's not a great deal of money or perfect living situation they end up in. In what sort of ways are local authorities acting unlawfully um, and preventing these children, these families, from accessing the support they need? I think it falls into two broad categories here. There's accessing support in the first place, and what you will see in practice is a lot of gatekeeping, preventing families getting accommodation and subsistence. So that's the first category. The second is even once they get the support, the adequacy of um, the accommodation provided or the adequacy of the subsistence. In relation to accessing support in the first place, gatekeeping is a problem. I think four or five years ago, we saw perhaps local authorities who didn't have a proper understanding of the fact that they could provide support. So they were wrongly concluding, we can't provide you with any help because you've got no recourse to public funds when in fact they could. These days, what we're seeing with some local authorities where they have quite a high migrant population within their area is a more structured assessment process that focuses much more on the credibility of the um, person seeking support and families being told you're not in need. We don't believe that you're really homeless, even when there's a lot of evidence that suggests they are homeless or they can't meet basic needs. And then they're being refused support or a great deal of emphasis being put on the family who are already in a crisis situation to provide documents or evidence of their destitution rather than actually the needs of the child being assessed. In relation to the kind of second group, the issues we've seen is families being dispersed, um, families being accommodated very far away from where they've been living before. problems with the accommodation provided, often disrepair issues, damp mould, infestation, um, massive overcrowding, not enough beds provided, people having to sleep on the floor. Um, And then in terms of subsistence, simply not giving enough money for people to be able to meet their essential living needs. So families, encountered families who've had to beg on the street for money or another client couldn't afford dental care so had to pull out her teeth and severe poverty situations like that where they just can't there's just not enough money for food they the children are going hungry claire can i ask you i mean what would you say to a listener who was thinking well maybe maybe these families are exaggerating their situations well it's always possible but in I've represented dozens, if not hundreds, of families now, and I've yet to encounter one that I think is lying. And I think if one looks at what support you would get from the local authority, i.e. the accommodation and the subsistence, if you were going to lie about your circumstances and act fraudulently to obtain services you weren't entitled to, you wouldn't do that to get Section 17 support because, as, as I said earlier, actually the accommodation you, you get is usually substandard. The amount of money you get is usually not enough to allow you to feed and clothe your children. So I don't think that 
that there's not a huge incentive for families to go and commit fraud to obtain something that's not very good at the end of the day. And then the other thing to bear in mind is that these are vulnerable families who are usually scared of authority. If they're here unlawfully or if they have uncertain immigration serv- um, status, they don't want to go to the local authority, put their head above the parapet. Their home office will be informed of their whereabouts. Um, so often they're scared. Like going to the local authority, in my experience, is usually the last resort of all of these families. And in the cases I've seen where the local authorities have disbelieved the parents on the basis of alleged inconsistencies or failure to provide information, when you actually dig a little bit deeper, what you find is it's actually just a misunderstanding. They weren't asked to provide the information that is said to be missing and they didn't realise why it might be relevant. There's a lot of information gathered during these assessment meetings. The family are often in crisis, often crying, distressed throughout these meetings and they can be very confusing um, for the family. So usually it isn't an inconsistency. It's just a misunderstanding that can easily be sorted. But the local authority haven't either don't have the time or haven't got the inclination to take the time that is necessary to get to the bottom of it. So what kind of methods are the local authorities employing to try and undermine a family's credibility? They will often ask these families, say, for everywhere they've lived over the last 10 years and then they may use things such as not knowing the postcode of where they lived as a possible example of, well, you didn't really live there because you can't remember the postcode. And I want to ask you, Abby, about how are you trying to overcome these unlawful practices by, by local authorities? I think we sort of have three different like strands of work that each aim to try to improve the implementation of support under Section 17 in different ways and try to, I guess, reduce destitution. Um, so the, 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 the first way we do that is through direct kind of frontline work where we work with families in this situation to try to access support on a kind of a one-to-one level. Um, and we take on about 200 new cases a year. Um, are any of you lawyers? Or no, we're not workers? lawyers, no. Uh, we're, we're a tiny organisation as well. I mean, we're only five people. Um, and at the moment, we only have one advisor, one and a half advisors. Um, although soon we'll have two, which is very exciting. Um, so, yeah, we take on about 200 cases a year and... That is through kind of direct advice and advocacy. And around 65% of the people who come to us have already asked the local council for support before they come to us and been turned away. With our help, um, more than 70% end up getting support. So um, clearly there's, well, from my perspective, clearly there's a lot of unlawful initial decision-making going on because those people should have been supported at an earlier stage if all we're doing is kind of presenting, packaging their case in a slightly different way. Um, So we would, 
you know, work with them to make a referral to the local authority, ask them um, for support. And then um, if that doesn't work, we will refer out to solicitors uh, like Claire, um, public law solicitors or community care lawyers um, who can then challenge that decision. Um, I suppose just thinking about the changing landscape, it seems like we are having to refer out fewer cases, which, you know, I certainly see as a positive thing. Uh, I think we are seeing more families getting support just through advocacy um, than we used to, which is great. Um, the second area of our work is more about supporting other organisations to help families with no recourse to public funds um, and help them to find out about Section 17 support. So we deliver training uh, on Section 17 and other support options for families with no recourse to public funds and that's open to you know anybody working with these families. So we have a kind of general training and then we also have various tailored sessions um, where we work with people in a particular profession. Um, and we also train some local authorities if they'll have us, which... They don't always want to. Would you say that some of the professionals who are working with these families actually don't know about Section 17? Yeah, definitely. Um, the the level of, of knowledge that you see th- through the training, you know, it varies dramatically. Like some people are really expert in it. Some people have never heard of it. Um, and what kind of professionals are we talking about here? Um, varies. Uh, so... A lot of people from voluntary sector, um, so from other charities, might be housing charities, it might be um, refugee charities, migrant charities. Um, And then we also work with a lot of domestic violence specialists. We work with um, people in the statutory sector, so midwives, teachers, children's centres workers. Um, Midwives, that's that's interesting. So because these are the people who are delivering the children of these single mothers yeah. who are um yeah in I destitution mean, quite quite a common sadly common situation is we'll maybe get a call on the advice line from a midwife about a woman who has given birth um is in hospital and they are unable to discharge her because she no longer has anywhere to go so it might be a situation where she was previously staying with a friend who let her stay when she was just one person but they don't want uh, her to bring a baby back back home and there's nowhere else for her to go with the child so the midwives might be trying to advocate on her behalf for social you know with social services to try to get them support under section 17 or or they may not know how to do that at all and they may just be talking to us and I mean when you think about kind of public money, um, you know, as a whole, it's an enormous waste of resources because obviously if someone is medically fit not to be in hospital, it's it's very expensive uh, to keep them there, which to my mind isn't the strongest argument why someone should be getting Section 17 support. They should be getting it because the child is in need and uh, and it's required. Um, But, you know, you can also make a financial argument there if you want to. yeah, so midwives, health visitors, also very common. So, so in the in the using the example of the midwife, you're training them to understand what kind of support that they're entitled to and how to access that support. 
Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, clearly it's not going to be the bulk of their work. So the level of, of knowledge, of like legal knowledge that they might need might be a bit different from somebody who is actually an advocate. Um, but certainly it would be really helpful for someone in that profession to understand what a woman's and a child's rights are and what to expect from social services and how to you know how to go about making that happen and also maybe how to challenge or how to refer out for a challenge if that doesn't happen so there's the training there's a telephone advice line for professionals uh, where people can call to ask questions about individual cases that's quite helpful for us um not just uh in that we're providing that advice to a, a, a larger number of, of of people but also to give us an idea of what's going on around the country because we get calls from all over england um so we kind of can have an idea of, of, of what section 17 support looks like in different areas um and then we also have online resources. We have fact sheets and an online guide uh, for Section 17 support. And we also have a, a kind of a members area of our website, which contains um, the policies and procedures for every uh, around Section 17 support for every local authority in um, England, uh, which we've obtained through Freedom of Information Act. So that's about sharing information with other like-minded organizations about what the various policies are between different local authorities yeah exactly so it, we think that it's helpful if you're working with a family in a particular area to see well first of all what does the local authority say it's supposed to be doing and is it doing that and secondly is what the local authority says it's supposed to be doing actually lawful um because surprisingly often the answer to both of those questions is no um, and so it, it can be useful for voluntary sector advocates. Um, it can also be useful for solicitors um, if they're bringing a challenge to what the local authority is doing in a particular case. And also if a lawyer is, is bringing like a judicial review, um, they can then potentially add in a, an element to that case which challenges the policy as well as just the um what's happening for that individual client. Um, and then we also are in the process of, of collecting anonymized case data uh, about what's happening uh, to different families in different areas. That's interesting because we spoke in the previous episode of the Unlawful State podcast, we spoke to Carrie Gerstheimer from Mencap who said that they are working more and more with them um, data and trends analysis for strategic work. I wonder, Claire, if you could expand just a little bit on how, why it's so important to, to collect this kind of data in terms of strategic legal work. I think the data is um, vital, really. When you're challenging a local authority and you want to make it at a more strategic policy level, you need to be able to demonstrate that this wasn't a mistake in this just individual case this is what is happening routinely because this is the local authorities policies abby johnson carry on the third area of our, our work is this sort of about more strategic challenges um so a lot of the problems that we encounter through the frontline work and that we hear about on the advice line or we hear about from people when we do the training 
Um, it's just the same problem again and again. Um, so it really does seem like there are these systemic issues with the way that support is being implemented. Uh, so we try to tackle those on, on, on a more strategic level. Um, and we do that in a variety of ways. Uh, so, for example, um, we work, we try to engage with local authorities, so talk to them, uh, and that can be by um, talking to actual the managers of the social services departments or the no recourse to public funds team, but also talking to councillors and um, mayors, kind of local politicians. And we have had some success with that. Um, in Can you Hackney. give some examples of... Yeah, uh, so in, in Hackney, for example, um, we've seen real change, which I think stemmed initially from actually a change in leadership. Um, so there was a new mayor elected and he ran on a kind of a platform of creating a, like a borough of sanctuary. Uh, and that really didn't fit very easily at all with the stance of their no recourse to public funds team, which was extremely hostile. Um, and it took quite a long time, but, you know, pressure from us and from other organisations, um, meetings, providing evidence from our casework, um, led eventually to real, like, I think, substantial change in policy and, and practice. Um, where now, you know, we don't really see a lot of problems in Hackney anymore, which is great. Um, so there's there's that. Um, we sometimes find that a kind of public uh, shaming is an effective way to create change, where we point out very publicly what a local authority is doing and how that is negatively impacting um, families and children. Um, one example I think would be um, something that actually we initially wanted to to focus uh, to to bring some sort of strategic legal challenge on, um, but in the end that didn't work out. But a kind of a public facing campaign did did have some change. So um, a number of local authorities were. Um, kind of seconding home office enforcement officers uh, to the local council where they would sit within the social services team or the no recourse to public funds team and um, at huge expense to the local authority, uh, Freedom of Information Act um, response from Haringey showed that they were paying like £80,000 a year to have this person in their team. Um, and from what we can gather, the purpose of these offices was really one of gatekeeping. So it was, they would be sort of brought into assessments um, in uniform uh, where, you know, the assessment is supposed to be about the child's need, but actually it turns into a kind of questioning of the parent's immigration status. It's very, very intimidating. And in a lot of cases, you know, we've heard of families not then wanting to approach the local authority because they're afraid. Um or being turned away, um, sometimes being given bad, incorrect, unlawful immigration advice uh, by the Home Office officers. And I mean, we did get some legal advice which suggested that, you know, the data sharing that was going on there might be unlawful as well. Um, but in the end, it was public pressure from us, which we see as really positive. And another area that 
we were sort of experimenting in, which has been quite successful, um, is around complaints, uh, where we worked with a number of families who had experienced unlawful decision-making, poor treatment, um, gatekeeping in particular areas and um, had them to write a complaint to the local authority um, explaining all of those issues in a kind of systemic way, so showing that this has happened on more than one occasion. Here are a lot of examples. Um, And those have been fairly successful. So, um, for example... We complained uh, to Greenwich Council. Um, the complaint was initially dismissed. Um, so we dismissed by the local authority yeah, itself. Yeah, they they didn't uphold it at the first stage, and they refused then to um, investigate it at the second stage of, of their own complaints process. So we were then able to go to um the local government ombudsman who uh, investigated it independently um and found in our clients favor that the decision making had been unlawful and, and awarded everybody involved in the complaint compensation um which was really really great um and what kind of status does that decision hold well it's interesting i mean it's not it's a public decision uh, so anybody can then see it we can use it to highlight poor practice um it's not a legally binding decision in the way that it's not like case law for example um and the local authority i suppose isn't legally bound to follow the decision of the ombudsman but i think it would be very strange for them to depart from that decision i don't know if you have anything to add there so you're right they don't have to legally Legally, it's not binding upon them, but they should follow it unless they've got a good reason mm. not to. And there's, you can challenge a local authority who didn't follow an ombudsman's decision. So, Claire, to end, could you tell us how useful you think it's been for you to use legal arguments and, and legal solutions in in the work at Project 17 and and the impact that that's had? I think it's been incredibly useful. I think it's had an impact not just on individual families, but more widely than that. Certainly Project 17 have helped over a thousand families who are homeless or couldn't feed or clothe their children get somewhere to live, get a roof over their head, get enough money that they could actually meet essential living needs. So on an individual level, that's been fundamental for these families. But also there have been changes to local authority policies as well. I can think of quite a few different local authorities who have changed their policy either as a result of um, challenges, legal challenges brought to their policies or through kind of advocacy work and, um, and campaigning that Project 17 has done. And then I would also say through the awareness that has been raised amongst other voluntary sector organisations, other voluntary organisations have been better able to advocate for their clients as well. So I think there's probably thousands of children who, but for the intervention of Project 17 and other voluntary organisations using the law, would have been street homeless or living in very vulnerable and precarious situations. And what advice would you have for other organisations looking to utilise the law more in their work? I think it's important to start with the data. So 
one thing that we have found is that when we're making our arguments, the, the reason that I think we're able to often do that quite successfully is because we have a strong evidence base, which is built on effective monitoring um, of the frontline work. Um, more broadly, I think you just have to try. Uh, it sounds a bit silly, but I think that actually, you know, getting involved in and talking to the people in power is is often a lot less daunting and less difficult than it seems. So I think that really talk to some lawyers if there's something that you think is wrong. Yeah. If you have a suspicion that it's wrong, it probably is. Exactly. I would say don't be scared to challenge public body decision making. Public bodies get it wrong the law wrong all of the time so um, if you think something is wrong look into it it probably is wrong um, and get legal advice early um, in this particular context the family will be eligible for legal aid um, and it might be in other areas as well um, so I would get legal get legal advice early if you're getting refusals and you feel like you're kind of hitting your head against a brick wall. And I'd say empower yourself and your clients through learning about the law in that area so that you can advocate more effectively for your client. Well, thank you both very much for talking to us um, and good luck with your mission. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Unlawful State. If you would like to hear some of our other podcasts, you can find a link on this page to all of our podcasts in the series.